one of the most important things that I learned is you never, ever, ever take yourself seriously. You always take the work seriously. Uh, the first is disastrous, and the second is imperative. Welcome to Artist as Leader, where we explore the intersection of creativity and leadership. I'm Rob Kramer, founder and CEO of Kramer Leadership, whose mission is to advance leaders for the greater good. And I'm Piercarlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, brought to you by the Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. This week, we bring you Pierre Carlo's interview with playwright and actor Carmen Aguirre. Pierre Carlo, you met Carmen when you were working in the theater, correct? Yeah, that's right. I was involved in the development of a really beautiful play, The Refugee Hotel, many years ago. Mm. Uh, back, at, you know, you go on Google and you realize how old you are. This was <laughs> back in 2005. It was actually the first year of the uh, of the Kirk Douglas Theater in Culver mm, City. Nice. We developed that play there. And by this point, a few years later, at this point in her career, Kermit Aguirre is one of Canada's most acclaimed authors. She's also one of its most fearless. She has written or co-written 25 works for the stage, several of which, including The Refugee Hotel, which I just mentioned, draw on her experience as a political refugee from and resistance fighter against the Chilean dictatorship of the 70s and 80s. These plays have won several awards and have been produced all over North America. She's also written two remarkably candid and unsentimental memoirs. Her first, Something Fierce, Memoirs of a Revolutionary Daughter, became a number one bestseller in Canada, one Canada reads in 2012 and has been translated into several languages. Four years later, her book, Mexican Hooker Number One and My Other Roles Since the Revolution, was named the best book of 2016 by the National Post and CBC and was likewise a bestseller. Carmen is also an accomplished, award-winning actor, having appeared on stages throughout Canada, and she has several film and TV credits to her name. I started the interview by asking her if she could tell us when she took the first steps to becoming the artist she is today. Okay, well... This might sound a little bit far-fetched, but I think it was when I was around three years old. (laughs) Um, So I was born in Chile, and I was living in Chile, and I remember going to the circus for the first time in Patagonia, which is where we were living. And I must have been about three years old, no word of a lie. It's one of my first memories ever, because it's like imprinted in my retina, and uh, I just knew watching the circus, that that's what I was going to do. And I didn't understand yet what theater was or anything like that. But I knew that I I, I got that I wanted to do stuff like that in front of people, <laughs> right? What the circus people were doing. I was like, oh, there's an audience. Okay, I get it. I get it, right? And uh, I, I found it very, watching the circus, I found it very scary and exciting. And then I was later able to pinpoint that, It was because these artists that I was watching were taking a huge risk. Mm. So, like, uh, I remember the biggest uh, image that's seared in my brain from that time is a a woman in a bikini standing on a white horse that was riding around in circles and and she wasn't falling off, right? Um, And so I was like, right, she was like risking her life basically (laughs) to, to provide that image for us. Uh, And then later on, I must have been about four or five during the socialist government in Chile, uh, during Allende, my mother, uh, my parents were very, very supportive of the socialist government. And she 
joined a theater troupe. It was like an agitprop theater group. And her, her job with this theater troupe, and she was very young, she was about 23 or 24 years old at this time, was to go around the countryside and uh, teach uh, rural communities about what the socialist government was doing vis-a-vis the agrarian reform and the literacy campaign through theater. And I never got to go, which upset me very much. I was, again, like four or five years old. I was always left behind. But basically, my, 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 the image that I have of that is that this VW van pulling up in front of the house and the door opening and these really like cool people being inside the van, like basically they were hippies, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, strumming guitars and uh, just very fun people and her diving into this van and taking off. And my father explaining that she was going to do theater. Oh, and so I was like, oh, well, that's what I have to do, obviously. Right. <laughs> anyway, then it was later when we were exiled. Uh, we were um, expelled from the country after the right-wing coup of Pinochet in 1973. And uh, after a circuitous route ended up in Canada, uh, I, I guess at around eight years old, started, quote-unquote, writing and directing and producing my own plays at all the Chilean gatherings and so basically I would just gather all the kids for the whole night and we'd work on a play. And at the end of the night, we'd put on the play. And basically it was like one play, uh, which was Revolutionary Cinderella. <laughs> yeah. And it was like how Cinderella is being exploited and how she takes up arms and creates a revolution uh, with all the people like her and takes the power and so I had very all these different um, versions of it. Like I had like the regular, like somebody plays Cinderella and somebody plays a stepmother and da-da-da, right? And, and in this, in Revolutionary Cinderella, Che Guevara comes into the story and recruits her and all that. Yeah. And so I had, and then I have like the noir version and then I have like the gender reverse version where Cinderella is played by a boy and Che Guevara. And how old were you her. when you were producing? Oh, Eight. Okay. Yeah. Eight, nine, ten. Uh, then I had like the one man show Cinderella, which was my boy cousin just playing every single role, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And, th- and then I basically and, and of course, I was always I was very, very lucky that that we were I grew up in Vancouver where I went to elementary school. Our catchment happened to be this elementary school that was on the cutting edge of it was an alternative school, basically, in the 1970s. So you can only imagine, right? An, an alternative school in the 1970s in Canada. Like it was like hippie central, which was the best because basically my best friend Dewey and I basically got every afternoon, like the t- teachers would give us every afternoon to write and direct and perform in a play. And it had to be a five minute play. And at five to three, we were. We, we could present it to our entire class because they knew that we wanted to be theater people. They understood that. So I basically spent most of my elementary school life from two until 2.55 <laughs> uh, on my feet with Dewey coming up with these two handers that we would then present at five to three. Yeah. And then, then, you know, through my teenage life, I actually lived in in South America and Bolivia and then Argentina. And uh, I joined theater troops there. 
And then when I was uh, 18, it's, it's a very long story, I joined the Chilean resistance against the Pinochet dictatorship. And I left behind my artistic life and my artistic self uh, just to, I was consumed by that cause, which was the only way to be a part of that cause. Uh, it made it, it didn't make sense to not be that way. But we lost uh, the cause uh, by the time I was 22. And um, I was young enough to pursue this calling again. So I ended up coming back to Canada and auditioning for like the top classical theater training program in Western Canada, which I knew was very difficult to get into, but I just willed myself to get into it. And I did. Um, I mean, it was super difficult to get into that. They audition 300 people from across Canada for every semester. They accept a, a total of 16 um, and about four graduate. It's a very tough program. So uh, I hung on by the by my teeth and I was able to graduate. And that was 30 years ago when I started that program. So from the ages of 18 to 22, when you were trained as a resistance fighter and were active as a resistance fighter, what what leadership lessons did you learn that are useful to you today as an artist? Because I, I'm not assuming that every resistance fighter is an innate leader, right. or maybe I'm wrong. But <laughs> w- w- was there anything you learned in those years that has been useful to you as an artist leading? Yes. I mean, it is, I guess the most, I don't know if it's the most, one of the most important things that I learned is you never, ever, ever take yourself seriously. You always take the work seriously. Uh, the first is disastrous, and the second is imperative. It's never about you. It can't be about you. It has to be about the the, the work. I mean, in the case of the resistance, it was about the cause, right? Mm-hmm. In the case of the art, it's about the work. So the, the sooner you can get your ego out of the room and really have a really wide vision that doesn't include you... <laughs> um, then uh, the better. Um, listening uh, is a, a key uh, quality, I think, in order to be a leader, to, to really have the capacity to listen, to have the confidence to make decisions once the listening part is done, and be willing to take huge risks, uh, be willing to fail and to take responsibility for the work and for the failure um, and to be accountable. You have to be willing to be accountable. When did you realize that you were a leader? I guess when I was eight. <laughs> Cinderella. <laughs> when I would grab all the kids at the, uh, <laughs> at the Chilean gatherings and take them to the nearest bedroom or the nearest parking lot, depending on where we were and, and like, okay, you're Cinderella, you're the stepmother, you're Chikavada, you stand there, you say this, you say that. <laughs> so and what's it, amazing, though, is that it was not <laughs> difficult for you to get followership, to get a cast of kids, yeah. also, presumably occasionally an audience of adults. What is it in you that's able to do that, that was able to do that even at eight? Uh, I guess it just never crossed my mind that that people would say no to me. It was just a given to me. I mean, it's so funny because I've always been told that I'm terrifying, which is... <laughs> very funny to me because I have no clue what people are talking about. 
Like, for example, again, this is when I was eight at my elementary school. My best friend, Dewey, right? She and I would do the plays. Uh, her older sister was always being bullied. And her older sister was a nerd. Like, like, like I'm talking the quintessential archetypical nerd. Uh, like, she was brilliant. I mean, she was like, if, you, if I showed you a picture of her at that age, I mean, you just want to cast her as the biggest nerd ever, right? So she was always being bullied. And I remember I was, we were in grade four, I guess, me and Dewey. And she was in grade six or seven. So she was quite a bit older than us, right? She was like a senior in the elementary school. <laughs> and at recess and at, on lunch break, she would come running up to me and be like, Carmen, Carmen, just go up to those grade seven boys and um, give them the evil eye and tell them off. And it was basically all these white boys who were like 12 and I was eight or nine. And they were the rich boys. Uh, they were like the future frat boys, uh, the terrifying boys, right? And I remember going around the corner. It was always the same. I would go around the corner of the, like this side wall of the school, and they'd all be standing there where they had just been bullying her. And I would go up to them, and I would push them against the wall. <laughs> yeah. And they would let me. They would actually let me. I would push them against the wall and yell out, fucker. <laughs> wow. And they would run away from me, which was hilarious. Um, and I, I mean, I'm, I had pigtails. It was very strange to me that they were afraid of me. But the point is that people have always been afraid of me. I guess I have a scary face. I have no clue. Well, because so, you'll you'll get up in their face and yell "fucker." <laughs> <laughs> That'll do it. <laughs> pigtails or no pigtails? <laughs> yeah. So. I guess because I came across as fearless, um, which I'm not, which is not true. I'm, I, I feel as much fear as anybody else. Um, but I guess because I came across as fearless and I continue to come across that way, uh, people will kind of take direction from me. In your career, I know you've had run-ins, I think, with established arts leaders whose leadership you openly questioned. If you could wave a magic wand and change three practices or habits or beliefs of current art leaders that you're witnessing, current or past art leaders, what what would those changes be? What would you like to see changed? Well, one of the things is that just because you're a leader doesn't mean you're qualified to have every conversation about every topic. And I think that's where the listening thing comes in, right? Like you have to be aware, like I'm not going to have, let's say I'm a leader, I'm not going to have a conversation about gender identity as a, I don't know what the current um, uh, wording is, but as a cis straight woman, I am not qualified to have that conversation. So I'm going to shut up. I'm going to bring in people who are qualified <laughs> to have that conversation and I'm going to listen to them. And I'm going to ask questions, no matter how dumb they are. I don't. I don't really care if, if I come. Like I don't really care what people think of me. So I'm willing to ask dumb questions. Um, and so what's happening now, I think, is that a lot of uh, mostly white men leaders in the arts seem to think they're qualified, or um, to yeah, seem to think they're qualified to have the conversation about systemic racism, and they're not. So they need to step aside and actually listen to the people who are qualified to have that conversation. They're just 
puzzled that, th- that they're not qualified for it because they think they are. And it's, it's very interesting to me, like the conversations that I've been having around systemic racism uh, in the theater in Canada with, with many people who are not all white, by the way, right, who actually don't know what systemic racism is. That is to say, they believe that a brown person or a black person can be racist towards a white person, which tells me that they don't actually know what the term racism is or how it began, or that it is actually about white supremacy, right? That it, that it is a, 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 an ideology that was started in the 17th century in order to uh, justify slavery, right? Let's create the white race. It's, it's an actual um, construct. Uh, but there, I'm, I, I'm, I, I realized uh, that many people don't know that, uh, that don't even know the, that, that history. Therefore, they actually believe that, you know, a black person can be, quote unquote, racist towards a white person. I guess that's what I mean, is that you as a leader need to understand that in a way you're kind of a facilitator uh, and you're not qualified to have many, many conversations and you need to know what those are. So, you know, I'm qualified to have a conversation about sexism because I'm a woman, right? And also I was raised by a feminist, a hardcore feminist. I, w- I was raised in a feminist household. But I'm, like I said earlier, I am not qualified to have any kind of conversation about gender identity. So, yeah, I, I guess also being a leader for me means being a facilitator. And how are you doing that these days? So one thing I'm trying to do is to not comment on social media. <laughs> wow. I, I find social media to be really destructive these days. Um, and, you know, uh, like in the rest of the world, probably, but certainly the rest of Canada and the United States, after the George Floyd uh, murder, um, I mean, that sparked a, a massive conversation about systemic racism in the theater in Canada. In our company, you know, we, none of us are black. So I was like, we can't say a fucking word here. Like, we just have to listen. Um and provide whatever resources we have if people need them. Um, so that's 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 what we've been trying to do, right? Providing uh, our literal space if people want to gather, providing, um, you know, technology if people need it in order to have uh, cross-continental meetings, uh, providing some funding. Uh, but yeah, one of the things that, that we very purposefully did was not make a public statement saying that we support lives, Black Lives Matter because we felt that that would have uh, been um, kind of insincere and dishonest because A, none of us in the company is Black and we've never done any Black work. <laughs> mm. So it would have come across as quite opportunistic mm-hmm. and uh, just fake. So now you're one, you said you're one of four core artists. Are you basically a co-artistic director in the, in the company? Yeah, so we call ourselves core artists, but basically it's, yeah, it's four co-artistic directors. Is this the first time you're leading in that kind of institutional capacity? Yes. 
So what challenges is that bringing to you um, that you had to face before? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I'm learning so much because, of course, there's a general manager, you know, there's marketing, there's all kinds of stuff. Whereas in the past, I've kind of self-produced <laughs> or, or, you know, other company, companies have produced my work and I just show up and do the work or I have self-produced. So I'm learning a great deal. And I've learned, I mean, I I tend to make I tend to not care what people think about me at all. Like, I'm not just saying that. I really don't care. And so I know that that has been a bit of a strain (laughs) on the company. (laughs) And why? 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 Well, because I'll just just say things publicly, uh, right? And they're like, uh, well, you know, you're kind of representing us now. But then they, they very quickly went, you know what? The reason we asked Carmen to join us, like one of the reasons is because she's like that. Given you were a fighter and continue to be a fighter, but given that certainly these days we've, it feels like we're at war. We're at war against a virus, against toxic historical injustices, certain people in office. Um, <laughs> what would you like to see your fellow artists, regardless of the media, what role do you want to see artists take in leading us through these times? I would like to see artists just be fearless in asking questions and responding to to what is happening, uh, whatever that means to 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 them. To it, it really is time to take a risk, and I'm not saying people haven't been taking risks, but I mean I'll never forget my grade seven art teacher in Bolivia. I, I did I lived in Bolivia for a bit when I was a kid. He always said. Um, Pity the artist who does not risk himself or his art. Hmm. And he ended up disappearing. There there was a right-wing coup um, shortly after I had him as a teacher. Well, during the the, the school year, and he disappeared. He was was disappeared. Uh, But I, I always keep his voice in my head. It had a very profound impact on me, especially considering that he was disappeared after the coup in Bolivia, uh, in 1979. Um, but yeah, th- I always just keep that for myself as well. Like pity the artist who does not risk himself or his art. I just always feel that if I'm not afraid going into a new piece, that I'm not digging deep enough. So Rob, I'd like to talk about courage. I mean, clearly Carmen is uh, an unusually courageous person, or at least I think I, she is. Which is also why I think she can put her art ahead of herself. I think it takes a very self-confident person to place her ego's demands far behind those of her art, right? So my question to you is, what do you tell leaders or leaders-to-be that you work with who are not naturally courageous? It's a great question, Pierre Carlo, and actually a, a common question. You know, I coach... Um, heads of nonprofits and CEOs of hospitals and presidents of universities and on and on and on. And, uh, and I, I could bet a dollar that probably 60 to 70% of the time when I start working with any new client, uh, 60 to 70% of the time, they're going to disclose feelings of imposter syndrome. So a lot of people think, wow, those people up there at the top or those leaders, they must be so confident. They must be so this, that, this, that. And actually, a lot of them are just humans like we are. In fact, they're all humans, you know, but they have those fragile feelings and insecurities like any of us. So when I'm working with someone, it might be about 
uh, that experience or, or just straight up feeling like they don't have self-confidence or they're not courageous or frame it any way you want. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to explore a little about the history of how they got to where they are and how they make sense of how and why they formed a, a self narrative that they're not courageous, you know, or why they're insecure or lacking in confidence. So once we can get clear on the narrative that they keep telling themselves, what's the story they keep telling themselves and where, why, why are they telling themselves that story? Then what I often like to do with, with their permission is ask a, a challenge question, you know, such as what do you get out of having no courage? What do you get out of hiding? What do you get out of playing the fear card all the time? And, you know, that's, that's a strong question to ask somebody. And, and, and oftentimes they say, well, nothing. And I, and I'll often come back in those kinds of cases and say, well, I, I, I think you do get something out of it. Otherwise you couldn't, you wouldn't keep playing that card over and over. So I, I encourage them to dig a little deeper. What do you get out of, uh, having no courage? And, and then we start to really unpack um, it lets them hide. It lets them be safe. It, you know, there's less risk. Yeah, what are the most, what are the most common answers? Yeah. Those kinds of things. A lot of it is, you know, if I don't put myself out there, they don't have to risk. I don't have to take the risk of being hurt, given hard feedback. You know, the list goes on and on for us as artists, we live in that world, but there's plenty of artists who have these fears and overcome them and do it anyway. Um, and then there's just as many people who have these fears and it does limit what they're willing to do or what they're willing to put out in the world. There's a lot of great artists that when they hit the leadership opportunity, then these fears come up. Makes me think that happens to a lot of people, especially performers. I think when they become famous, when suddenly their ego weirdly becomes more fragile, their ego becomes more important than their art. And then they just become caricatures of themselves. Oh yeah. I think, uh, uh, and even maybe sooner now with social media and the ability to, for us to create quote unquote, our own brand, you know, what's my brand? Mm-hmm. I think people are developing this sense of like, so worried about their image and what they're putting out in the world, even right. before they might be a successful artist, that it's self-limiting, that you're spending time in the wrong place. You know, we have a an interview coming out soon on this podcast with Nikki Giovanni, the, the famous poet. And she talked adamantly that she's never had an agent and she thinks it's bunk. And she tells her students, you know, if you're focusing on that, that's you're focusing in the wrong place. You need to focus on being a good writer. So write you know? Right. And it's the same idea um, in this kind of situation. I really appreciated this interview tremendously, uh, Pierre Carlo. Thanks so much for bringing Carmen to us. Uh, I was very happy to. Everyone should know her and her work. If you'd like to learn more about Carmen and read a longer version of this interview, please go to uncsa.edu slash artist as leader. If you enjoyed this interview, please leave us a rating or a comment wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music is By the Dimes. I'm Pierre Carlo Talenti. And I'm Rob Kramer. Thanks for listening.